0: Our sermon text this morning comes from John chapter 12, verses 20 to 36. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him.
1: Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we love you. Because even though we, we, we do not deserve it, you hear us. You hear our cries, our voice, and our supplications to you, God. Therefore, we will call upon you as long as we live. Even though the cords of death will encompass us. And the tares of Sheol will come upon us. And we find distress. And God, our hearts are in sorrow. It is then that we will call upon your name, O Lord. As we do right now. And we know that you will save our lives. As the psalmist writes, God. And so when we now come to you, we ask that you would work in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives in such a way that even though we feel as though we might be just on the threshold of death itself, God, that you would make yourself known and that you would glorify yourself through us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Their death was their glory. Their death was their glory. Marie Antoinette, suffering the fate of the guillotine as a queen. Had it not been for her death and the revolution surrounding it, of course, she would have gone down in history of just another overspending uh, adulteress a monarch of the sixteenth, seventeenth or eighteenth century. We wouldn't we wouldn't even know her. Or even Todd Beamer in Flight 93. You know him because of his death and his courage in his death to overtake the plane with some others and crash it. Or even Abraham Lincoln, our beloved Abraham Lincoln. He will withstand the erasure of time because of his death. Grant will be forgotten, Lincoln will not in this world. Their death was their means of the glory. And that's the same thing we're going to see in our text here this morning. You see that the hour of glorification has come for Christ. And the means of his glory, this hour of glorification has come. And the means of his glory is going to come. Not because he's a great teacher or a wonderful philosopher or anything like that. No, his glory is going to come because of his death. That's what I want you to dwell on, meditate on, Lord willing, this week is that glory comes through death. Glory comes through death. How are we going to see that? Verses 20 through 26, as you look at the text, you're going to see the, the hour of glory. The hour of glory that has come. And after that, you're going to see verses 27 through 33. You're going to see this glory that comes and takes up all of our lives will then go to all of the nations. So you have the hour of glory and this glory is then going to go to all of the nations. And then what do we do with ourselves? This verses 34 through 36. If glory comes through death, then we die to ourselves. That's the application out of it. Verses 34 through 36. So you see that glory comes through death. We're going to see the hour of glory. You're going to see this glory go out to the nations. And then what do we do? Well, then we die to ourselves. Last week, we talked about the, the triumphal entry. to just kind of catch us up to speed here. And Christ is coming in. It's on a Sunday. And he's coming in. And the Lamb of God and the King of God is coming into the city of God to go into the house of God. It's a beautiful picture. Right as all the other families are bringing in all of the lambs for the Passover. So the lambs are coming in. Christ is coming in as well. And you see, you see three different responses here. John 12. You see the disciples. How do they respond? Well, the disciples, they, don't, they respond in a way they don't even realize what's happening. They don't realize the depth of what's happening before them until after the resurrection. They need to see these events through the resurrection. We have the text, which is better than the events. So you understand what Christ has done through the resurrection. So that's the disciples. Well, what about the crowd? You see how they response? So They're just there because this guy who they've heard things about has just raised Lazarus from the dead. That's quite astounding. So the crowds are then coming out to meet Christ. But then what what about the Pharisees? This is our little hinge point here. Look at the end of our sermon text from last week that we didn't get to. Verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you will see that you are gaining nothing. You're going to gain nothing in in your opposition against Christ. Look, the whole world is going after him. Next verse, we get to our text. Now among those who went up to worship, the whole world, this is it. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. You see the transition there. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, friend, where I am. There will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You're beginning to see the, the expansion of the ministry of Christ. It's just a little bit in chapter 4. You have this kind of half-breed, Samaritan woman, a little Jewish, a little Gentile. Uh, and then you also see his interaction with the official's son. Outside of that, there's, there's really no dialogue, really very little exchange that we see outside of the Jewish people. The wedding in Canaan, it's a Jewish wedding. The cleansing of the temple, talking with the, the, the Jewish leaders in Nicodemus in chapter 3. The healing of the man at him that Adam was preaching on, or the feeding of the five thousand. The crowd of people are not just hungry, they're going to a Jewish festival, they're, they're Jewish. Or healing of the, of the blind man as well. So it's rather startling now. You see, John in his, his gospel, he's gone through three years quite rapidly in 12 chapters, and now in these next 10 or so chapters, everything slows down and everything matters. And now you see, the whole world's going after him. Now there's some Greeks. Some Greeks that come up to Christ. And these, these are not Jewish people. As you see in Acts chapter 6, and other places I think Acts chapter 9, you see some Jewish people who didn't really work. They're biologically Jewish, but not culturally. It's not that. These are non-Jewish people. No Jewish blood in them whatsoever. And these people are the ones coming to Christ. So of course, it makes sense that they go to Philip and Andrew. They're the disciples who are Jewish, but they have Greek, Gentile names. And there are places where more Greeks uh, were from. That's why they say from Bethsaida and Galilee. Perhaps they even knew him. And they go to these Philip and Andrew. And maybe they were up in the temple courts and you could only go so far. And then they see Christ beyond because they're Gentile. And you see Christ and disciples and they call the disciples. Hey, hey Philip and Adam, come on, come over here. We want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. I can't go to him. Maybe he can, he can run to me. And his response, you think, what's the response? You think, you think he's going to say, oh, yes, that'd be great. I'd love to go see them. No, it's the usual half cryptic response of, oh, now my hour has come. And you just have to think about it. You can't rush through it. And you go, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. So, what's happening here? You have some. The nations are going to all go after him. Now you have some Greeks that are coming up to him and they ask to see Jesus. He doesn't say that'd be great and go talk to them like he has other people. He just stands there and he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's his response. Well, what is it about these Greeks who he's not even going to talk to that says his hour is now come? You see... It's always been about the nations. It's not yet. The wedding in Cana, chapter 2, Mary, his mother, wants him to perform this miracle and eventually he does. But he says, Woman, softly, it's not as harsh as we would take it. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then he tells the woman at the well, the hour is coming. It's not yet here, but the hour is coming when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Chapter 5, this healing Bethsaida, truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is not yet here. The hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. John chapter 7 teaching at the temple with the festival of booths. He's teaching in the temple and he says, they're they're seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour is not yet here. Same thing in chapter 8. They sought to arrest him, but they couldn't do it because his hour had not yet come. But then when the Greeks come to him, when the Gentiles come to him, when the nations begin to come to him, now, now is the time. And the hour is coming for the death of Christ. And it's necessary. And he said, gives this illustration. Think, think of it here of the, in this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's, it's necessary. It's like a stalk of wheat. If, if Christ, if He just stays by Himself, if He remains alone, But in his death, there's a multitude of the harvest. In the same way, think of the wheat. It exists. Its purpose in life is so that it will die. That's why it's there. When the grain begins full and it's ripe and ready, then it dies. In the same way, Christ's purpose is to come and to die. All of the teachings, all of the miracles, they're all building up to this one point. This death and the resurrection of Christ. You pull all of that out and you have nothing. You have a man who has great, great teaching, who healed a couple of people. Good job. All of that is building up and pointing to his death and his resurrection. One of the commentators, a really good one, Matthew Henry, says, Thus Christ might have possessed his earthly glory alone without becoming man. He could have stayed there. He could have stayed in heaven. He was quite glorified there. Or after he had taken man's nature, he might have entered heaven alone by his own perfect righteousness. Born of Mary, never sinned. He would have always been welcomed back into the throne room of God. Even without suffering or death. But then, no sinner of the human race could have been saved. This is the life of Christ. That he would, think about this. That God would lead the, the realms of glory, condescend, come down into here. And die for us. Horrible sinners who hate him at the time when he dies. We would have loved to crucify him just like everybody else. And it is for us that Christ has died. Some of you at this very moment are thinking, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. Don't let your heart grow callous to this glorious truth that God sent his son to die for you at the very moment when you hated him and were walking in rebellion against him. But it's not isolated to Christ's life as well. It applies to us, I should say, as well. Verse 25, look at that. For whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for an eternal life. Everything's upside down. Those of you who love your life, you will lose it. You'll be like the kernel of wheat that remains alone. Those of you who hate this life, you will keep it for eternity. Like the kernel of wheat that goes and dies and is buried in the ground. In death. It's always in death that you have life. Christ has undergone death so that life might abound. Wouldn't we not be willing, wouldn't we not joyfully follow in the same path after our Messiah? Don't you trust him? Does it not compel you to die to yourself? If we know that life is in death, if we know that glory comes through death, We're not going to replicate the death of Christ. But should we not die to ourselves constantly? Absolutely. Philip Berry, this this past month, lived out this truth. He's an evangelist in Uganda who's preaching to Muslims. And they were seeing the Muslims converted. And on September 6th, on a Wednesday, Philip Berry was run down while he was riding on his bike, struck in his back. They knocked him off. They began to beat him. And someone in the mob picked up a large stone, lifted it over his head, and crushed his skull. There. Your brother in Christ. Bled to death. This is true that he who hates his life in this world will have eternal life. To follow Christ is not to live your life in expectation of future glory. To follow Christ is to die to yourself now. All of your desires, all of your dreams, they must come in line with Christ. And it's our... Wouldn't it make sense for our lives to be different? You think about your life over this past week and the, your week upcoming. Are we so refined? Are we so refined? We're so polished off that nothing's going to change? We just have this trajectory set and everything's good? We can just kind of put it on cruise control? I prayed the prayer. I got baptized. Good. Fantastic. I'm even here on a Sunday. What more do you want? This is good enough for you. No. 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 Crucify the flesh. Crucify it. If obedience to the Father brought Christ to give up all of the realms of glory and to come down and basically be a, a nomadic homeless teacher who is maligned by everybody and not even understood by his family, wouldn't following that same path make us look maybe a little bit different than we do right now? I hope so. This Messiah who willingly gave up all that he had because he knew that his Father was the provider. This Messiah who forgave because he knew that the Father would be the one to bring justice. This Messiah of ours who was associated with the outcast because he knew his standing was secure before the Father. The one who is patient. This is my sin. The one who is patient because his father was sovereign even over time. Our lives should look drastically different, radically different. And some of you are thinking, and you're actually doing this quite well, actually, and you're thinking to yourself, I'm dying. I'm dying, and I can't do this. I can't go on any longer. Good. That's my counsel to you. Good. Killing off the old man is painful. This slow self-suicide is not pleasant. And it's the frequency of our sins that makes it so difficult. Day by day, hour by hour, I must be crucifying myself. Because I see the sin popping up again and again. Thought after thought after thought. I have to fight against it. You have to fight against it. Unless you love your life in this world. If you want your glory now, take it. But we know that. We have this great promise before us. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If you want your glory now, take it. That's fine. But if you want to die to yourself, follow Christ. Crucify the flesh. It's through death that you receive true glory. True glory from God the Father. All right, so what have we seen? We've seen the hour of suffering that has come. Because the nations are now becoming are coming to Christ. And it's through his death that you'll see this, this abundance of fruit coming out then through the wheat. Now we're going to see how this actually happens. And how the glory will go to the nations. Let's read again here in verse 27. Now, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose... I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Verse 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said that an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Look at our Messiah before us. We want to alleviate every little bit of suffering in our lives. Any inconvenience. We want it to be drowned. Look at the resolve of Christ. He's not going to sidestep the path of suffering that is before Him. He's not even going to taint His lips with a prayer for the Father to pull back a little bit. He says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but it's for this purpose that I've come to this hour. There is a resolved purpose for His life and death to be molded in such a way that it brings glory to God the Father. Verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from this earth, I will draw all people to myself. This, this lifting up of Christ, this exaltation of Christ. We think of it as He ascends back to the Father, and that is true. We think of Christ being exalted As he's now with the heaven on the right hand of God the Father from now throughout the rest of eternity. But the exaltation of Christ happened on the cross. That's where it began. When he was lifted up. And it's this very cross that is it's foolishness. It's foolish to the nations, and it's the means by which the nations are going to come to Christ. It's so beautiful. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For the Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Greeks and Jews. It is the power of God and it is the wisdom of God. As Owens writes in his book on the glory of Christ, the cross is both a sanctuary and a stumbling block. Everything leads to the cross. Everything leads to the cross. Even to us. This, this cross, if we follow our Messiah, he's asking, Father, don't, don't pull back your suffering. We must follow with that same resolve. God, help me crucify my flesh. Help me die to myself. As Christ, as Christ goes to the cross, it makes sense that we too would go to the cross. That that's the place of our refuge. That is our sanctuary. This place where the love of God and the wrath of God just so beautifully co together. The wrath of God that we deserve for our sin and a rebellion against him. And the love of God that he wants to pour out on us. That he was willing to send his own son to die that we might partake of this love of God. So when we're weary, we follow Christ and we go to the cross. And it's the place where the weary son of God was, was lifted up. How true it is, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That happens at the cross. Or in our pride, our pride wants us to run from the cross, even in your pride. Go to the cross and see the only one who has ever had the right to say anything good about himself. We love to adorn ourselves with compliments. He's the only one who had anything, the right to say anything good about himself. But what shall we boast in? Paul writes, But far be it from me to boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. All right, so we take our our weariness, our pride. What about our bitterness? Well, we take it to the cross. Don't hold on to it. Take it to the cross. And then there at the cross, look up and see your Messiah suffering, bleeding, dying, praying out to the Father. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Take your bitterness to the cross. Even our sin. Perhaps you're thinking, is there room for me? Is there room for me at the cross with all of my sin, all that I've done? Where shall I place them and I cannot carry them anymore? We bring it to the cross. We bring it all to the cross. For Christ has already taken the sin for His people. Isaiah writes, surely he has borne our griefs and has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And on him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And it's by his wounds that we are healed. So this hour of glory has come for Christ. This hour of glory means that he will be lifted up, crucified. And that is the cross that we, as we follow him, we go there again and again and again. It's this fount of blood that satisfies us. So it's not just all of ourselves though, but it's so beautiful. It's all of the nations as well. It says, when I am lifted up from the earth, what happens then? I will draw all people to myself. God's beautiful plan. And notice how it happens. He's the one that will draw all people all people to himself. Not without exception, like everybody's going to be saved, but without distinction. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And how is this accomplished? Who's going to do the drawing, pulling you in, effectually calling you? It's Christ. That he would be the one glorified. That he would be the one, even in the beginning of your faith, to begin to draw you in. This cross that you saw and that was foolishness has now become your sanctuary because he's been the one drawing you in, pulling you. This is how arrogant we are. We think the nations are out there. Come on, guys. We are the nations. Seriously. You are a fruit of this glorious truth. We're a long ways from Jerusalem. And you see the object is always, always Christ. He will not draw them to anyone else. He will draw them always to himself. It's been the plan from the beginning, Genesis 17, 5. God says, no longer will you be called Abram. For your name shall be called Abraham, for I will make you a father of a multitude of nations." I will not expand your nation. I will make you a father of a multitude of nations. Which happens through Christ, even at the dedication of the temple. Solomon is is praying, knowing that this temple, prefiguring Christ, will be a prayer, house of prayer for the nations. It's always been God's plan to draw all of the nations into Himself. And immediately after the death, the burial, resurrection of Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and they go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth, which we are now the fruit of. How does it end though? You see, it begins in this hour in the text. How does it end though? John lays it out for us in Revelation. Chapter 7, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one, no one could number. Remember Abraham, your children are going to be like the stars of heaven. John sees a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, every tongue. And every nation, the peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All right. What have we seen so far? The hour has come. The nations are coming to Christ. And the hour has come for Christ. The purpose of Christ's coming is to be lifted up, and this foolish cross is now this, this magnet that's drawing in everybody from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. What do we do with this when I go to work tomorrow? It's great. What do I do tomorrow? Look at the rest of the verses here. The crowd answers him, We have heard from the law that the Christ must remain forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this? The Son of Man. And they're saying, No, we we know that the Christ is going to reign forever. He's going to exist forever. He will, 2 Samuel 7, Daniel 7, Ezekiel 34. This Messiah is going to reign forever. How will he die? They don't understand the resurrection. That's the missing part. What does Christ tell them? Verse 35, Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Walk. Walk in the light as you follow Christ. Perhaps some of you have seen the glory of God. Perhaps you've tasted the goodness of Christ for many years now. But how frequently we see people who have seen the goodness of God, tasted the goodness of God. They've gone on the, a couple steps of this journey. As we walk in the light, it's pictured as a journey. They take a couple steps. Maybe they, they walk for years and then they fall away. It all begins with one little thought. It always begins with one little instance of not crucifying the flesh. Just a little bit, a little trajectory. No guy ever says, hey, I'm gonna cheat on my wife and blow up my whole family and my kids and my grandchildren are gonna be messed up. I'm gonna do that, that'll be awesome. No, it's not that. It's one little instance, one little look of not crucifying the flesh. Walk in the light. Continually walk in the light. The shadows that are calling you like the sirens, That is your grave. That is not your place of respite. That is not your place of being revived physically or spiritually. No. The shadows are your grave. Walk in the light. Also, what do we do with this? Walk in the light and then also believe. Believe in the light. While you have the light... Christ, believe in the light. The very cross that can save you will also condemn you if you do not believe. There it is, in all of its glory. But if you don't believe, you won't partake of it. You will partake of the cross, but not of its glory. You will partake of the suffering of the cross because you will have no one to be a mediator between you and God the Father. So come to the cross and cling to the cross that in the death of Christ you might have life. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, we thank you that you will be glorified, not just by us, but every tribe, every tongue, every nation. No one will be beyond your glory, and there is no people that will be beyond your love and your grace. So God, we ask that you would let us follow this same path of your Messiah that we would hold so openly our own desires, our own ambitions, even life itself, that we would desire eternal life. God, that it would be so close that we could taste it, that we would joyfully forsake everything of this world so that we might say the glory of you. God, as we walk in our faith, Do not let us turn to the right or to the left. We know many who have fallen away. God, do not allow that to happen to us. Continue to use your Son to call us, to draw us to himself. Not just to the point of salvation, but God, from now until the moment of glory. Let us hear, let us follow, let us forsake everything. That you might be glorified in all things. Amen.